we can see Zionism as, first of all, a mutation of of anti-Semitism. It is it is a response to this uh, predicament that faced European society. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman, and I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Uh, I'm Tamara Nassar, Associate Editor of the Electronic Intifada and the producer of the Electronic Intifada podcast and live stream. Uh, my brilliant uh, colleague, Nora Barris friedman is uh, inviting me to guest host this episode. I'm really excited to be joined by a uh, friend, comrade, and uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Abdel Jawad Omar. Abdel Jawad is a lecturer uh, and a PhD candidate at Birzeit University. He is currently teaching in the Philosophy and Cultural Studies Department at Birzeit. Uh, what I admire about Abdel Jawad's work is that uh, he's capable of providing uh, a reading of the Palestinian question through a bedrock of psychoanalysis, which uh, is rarely done well, and he does it really well. The Israeli military campaign in Gaza, um, the Israeli genocide in Gaza, has been one of the most destructive and the deadliest in recent history. Israel's military carnage in Gaza has been uh, Compare, it's it's wreaked more havoc than multiple recent wars, including um, uh, Ukraine's Mariupol, including the Allied uh, bombing of Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Uh, Israel has been dropping bunker buster bombs on highly populated, very densely populated residential neighborhoods in Gaza, wiping out multiple generations of entire Palestinian families. Um, and within that context, with over 20,000 Palestinians killed in the past uh, 80 days, uh, with the death toll of children teetering on uh, nearly half of that, um, uh, Israel's genocidal campaign has been compared or uh, uh, been described with the language of the Holocaust. Uh, the language of the Holocaust has been used by Palestinians braving Israel's genocidal campaign in Gaza. Uh, it's also been used by uh, the leaders of the Palestinian resistance in Gaza, including the spokesperson for the Azzedine Qassam Brigades, the armed military wing uh, of Hamas, Abu Abaida. And uh, the political bureau uh, chief in Qatar of Hamas, um, Ismail Haniya, they've both used that terminology. They have uh, referred to it as al mahraqa which roughly translates to uh, a holocaust or a burning or a whole burning um, in Arabic. So the Gaza Strip has also been compared to a concentration camp or an open air prison. It's been called a death camp or a ghetto. Um, Israel has also used the memory of the Holocaust to justify its crimes in the Gaza Strip. 
I'd like to have a conversation with you, Arbud, about a range of topics. Uh, um, but chief among them is, uh, I'd like to interrogate this this um, this uh, idea of European history and memory, uh, the relations of debt or the politics of debt um, uh, in Europe. Uh, you wrote on Twitter the other day something very interesting. Uh, you said, quote, I am not sure the German and European collective guilt blinds it from seeing what is happening in Palestine in fact, I think the opposite is true. European subjectivity takes delight in seeing its historical victims becoming oppressors. That is how conditions for psychological redemption are created. It's not in turning away or in historical and collective guilt acting as a barrier for seeing and bearing witness. It is this guilt that propels an attitude that secretly wishes to tell Israel, show us more, show us what you can commit. Aboud, what do you think Israel represents in the European collective, public, and historical imagination? How do you think the European and specifically uh, German public experiences witnessing Israel commit this genocide against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip? I mean, I think, look, I think, uh, thank you, Tamar, first of all, for uh, the introduction and for hosting me again. Um, I'm more than uh, happy to be with you, but I think look, it's a it's a very complicated uh, ground that we're trying to broach uh, or you know talk about um, the notion of what Israel represents in this collective European imaginary, or what also Israel and the Arabs represent um, uh, together, is one that is complicated because at one point in that you know, long history uh, of Europe relating to its own Jews, um, there is the fact that Europe turned its own Jews to the internal enemy, no? the other who needs to be abjected, who needs to be uh, forced out of Europe, the European that cannot stay within Europe, you know, and that, that, that took a, a turn with Nazism and National Socialism where uh, being removed from Europe uh, meant uh, the systematic industrial killing of uh, of many of those others, including Jews, within the boundaries of Europe, in uh, in the Holocaust. So we had this industrial mass killing uh, of Jews. Or you know the alternative was in, in many also anti-Semitic discourses was that Jews need in this colonial moment to find a place outside of Europe where they can um, you know create their own let's say, European colonial uh, experiment, whether it's in Palestine or Uganda or Argentina or other places that were studied. Um, um, and, you know, it was shared between uh, many of the then Zionist leaders like Herzl and many of the, let's say, anti-Semitic uh, foreign policy voices within the British Empire and even among some of the Germans or some of the French uh, uh, policymakers that saw within uh, the idea of a Jewish state outside of Europe a solution to the, what was termed in Europe a Jewish problem. So that was, I mean, this is the background of Israel. I, I think we can see Zionism as, first of all, a mutation of, of anti-Semitism. It is, it is a response to this 
uh, predicament that face European societies with the whole notion of an original sin that ties Jews to the killing of Jesus and that moves throughout the Middle Ages and transforms into this kind of anti-Semitism in the more modern age, where the, the Jew is always placed in question within uh, the European collective imaginary. But alongside that, I mean, and, and I think it's important historically to also situate that the Arab has also been transformed. The Arab, the Muslim, has always been also the external uh, enemy. So there's that kind of internal enemy uh, in the figure of the Jew, and then there's the external enemy in the figure of, of the Arab or the Muslim, the one that threatens Europe from outside of Europe, the one that threatens uh, European culture, society, and even philosophical development. And of course, in many instances, what we can see in Europeans, how they render this history is that they render it as always a form of enmity, clash of civilization, cultures, etc. Very few people attempt to also look at how these cultures, you know, had a lot of intercourse and, um, you know, um, how they're folded within to get together in the Mediterranean and how they interacted. Sometimes they allied themselves. I mean, it, it wasn't always this figure of perhaps enmity in this long history that binded, you know, Europeans and Arabs. But in many ways, I mean, you can we can say that um, the Jew was the internal enemy, while the Arab was and remains also to some degree in kind of a collective, perhaps more hidden part of European consciousness, the external also enemy. So Israel in many ways comes into the fold in a very late colonial period, as Tony Judd says, you know, one of the problems with Israel is that it creates its colonial project late in the in, in colonialism, uh, late in, 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 in terms of the world moving away from colonialism in this moment you have you know this desire from european specifically central european jewry to come and create a state uh, uh within the boundaries of palestine a jewish state or a state for the jews which always meant that the indigenous people of the you know of palestine will be displaced ethnically cleansed murdered massacred killed either seen through the lens of the colonial gaze, which was in many instances linked Palestinians to the, you know, um, to the natural scenery. So they didn't see us. They see us as part of like the animals, the birds, uh, the natural uh, grounds of Palestine itself. Or they saw us as an enemy, uh, an obstacle that has to be uh, taken uh, care of for a state to be created on the expense of the Palestinian people uh, and their long historical existence in Palestine, based on a lot of the mythology that, of course, Zionism uh, spews. And a lot of it, and one of the things that are very particular about Zionism, at least as a colonial movement, is that it's very pragmatic when it comes to how it actually justifies itself uh, ideologically. Um, you know, in different periods, you can see it saying to itself, we're colonialists, but we're also indigenous to Palestine. So we're, we're indigenous colonizers of, of Palestine. That's, that's one of the things that, for instance, Joseph Massad talks about it in the persistence of the Palestinian uh, question of how Zionism produced itself both as a European colonialist movement, but at the same time as an indigenous movement liberating through its colonialism the land of Palestine from 
its own indigenous people, the Palestinians. So you, you, you have a lot of these ideological maneuvers within Zionism in an attempt to juggle itself in a, in a way to try to nativize itself in the land of Palestine through religious claims or through whatever claim that it, 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 it holds. And on the other hand, also still linking itself uh, to European ideological uh, modes of thinking in the historical moment that, you know, uh, uh, exists. So for in, in the 20s, it's a colonialist movement. Uh, it's a progressive socialist movement at some instances. Sometimes it's a religious fundamentalist movement. Sometimes it's a, it's presented as a liberal uh, beacon at dem democracy uh, and, and uh, you know, a state, uh, a startup state. So it's, it has all these different myriad, different representations that link well with whatever, you know, the empire highlights or centers in terms of its discourse. And the Israelis are very adept at, you know, um, uh, placing their own claims on Palestine within whatever frame actually works. I mean, just just to, to recapture some of, of, of what we were trying to say, I think that for Europeans, there is a delight on one level. The first level is a delight to see Arabs and Jews, the cousins in, you know, the collective imaginary of Europe's balloting it out you know and you know th there's that delight of these these semitic people let's put it that way these cousins the internal enemy and the external enemy you know um fighting each other out over land and going into these um historical kind of biblical religious uh fights that have turned this figure of the Jew against the Arab and the Arab against the Jew. There is that kind of delight in the European psyche to see that kind of drama play out. It's almost as if it's, you know, a 24 hour biblical drama uh, that resurrects uh, a lot of the Christian imaginary as well in terms of how, you know, Arabs are figured. Of course, here Arabs are not necessarily Muslim, but Arabs and Jews, you know, committing acts of murder against each other, hating each other, displacing each other. Um, so there's that one level of it that is very raw. It's tied, uh, if we want, um, to biblical imaginary. And I think it still persists and exists in many ways, you know. Oh, those Arab and Jews, you know, uh, you know, killing each other. Um, kind of in a dismissive way, um, not being able to live together, not being able to coexist together. This this is all part of like how all, also Europe constructs, I mean, the current moment. But then comes also the history of, let's say, um, anti-Semitism and the particular history of how Europe dealt with its own Jews um, into the fold. And I think here with Germany specifically, we have a unique disposition that you know uh, a lot of people have placed it as collective guilt um you know germany now includes the security of the state of israel as part of the rationale for the existence of the you know the german nation so that means that 
you know, modern German identity after World War II is constructed around the memory of the Holocaust, but also is constructed persistently around the security of the Jewish state uh, or of Israel in this case. So you have you have a state that says part of my existence, part of the the rationale, the justification for the existence of a German nation is not the German language or culture or perhaps history. It's the existence and security of another state outside even the boundaries of Europe itself. Uh, it, this is what it's, you know, what German is uh, or modern Germany is proclaiming to be part of the rationale tied to this politics of memory and tied to this notion that there's a depth relationship here where uh, the Germans and the European collectivity has to pay uh, uh, to the Jewish people. And in this instance, the Jewish people are represented by uh, the state of Israel. So for me, I mean, of course, I think uh, that level of it, that level of seeing a state justify its existence through the persistence of another state is already eerie enough. No? Um, not to, and let's not talk about like, you know, Palestinians, indigenous rights, whether we have a right to Palestine or not, but just, just a state claiming or proclaiming that its own existence and rational for existence is the existence of another state is already very eerie and, and, and you know, you don't see that much in the world, you know, like a state uh, um, providing, you know, the central ethos of its existence by the existence and the persistence of, of another state. That's That's one element, that's one problem of it. The second of it is that there's this claim that this way, the Germans and perhaps the Europeans as a collective are paying back the Jews for the crimes they committed against the Jews. That's, that's, a, that's the idea also embedded within this notion of backing the state of Israel and its existence and persistence in, in Palestine and justifying even the existence of the German nation through it, is that through that, we will actually pay our debt. And this is an unpayable debt. Look, it's 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 a debt that we have to continue paying. It's never-ending debt, but that's the way, that's how we particularize the way that we should pay it. That's, that's the means, this is the methods, the technique of paying that debt is through backing of the Israeli state. Of course, a lot of people have pointed this out. It's not me within the Jewish world, which says that, first of all, this is, you know, um, a conflation between Jews and Zionism, a conflation that is in itself anti-Semitic, because it basically says that all Jews are, um, you know, Zionists, uh, which is not the case. A lot of Jews are anti-Zionists. A lot of Jews stand against the state of Israel in myriad ways. Some want to dissolve it, some see it as, you know, an aberration, some see it as uh, conducting or critique it on the basis of its human right abuses. You know, so there's a lot of different positions in the Jewish world when it comes to Israel. Some perhaps don't care about it, just don't want to engage. I mean, there's also like the indifference perhaps as a, as a position that could exist also in the Jewish world. So there's all these different uh, positions and Germany has limited its, its way of paying the debt to just one single mutation and reaction to anti-Semitism through the lens of Zionism as a form of colonial, uh, of a form of colonialism 
that also claims some sort of sort of indigeneity to the Palestinian land. So this is this is the one direction that the Germans have used or are using to pay its debt. And it's showing, you know, through a lot of cases where Jewish voices that are anti-Zionist are being silenced in Germany, you know. So it tells us one thing about what Germany have chosen in terms of who to back from within the Jewish world. Because unlike what Germans would like to believe or would like to say, um, this is a choice. No? It's a choice of who you back from the Jewish world. Do you back the anti-Zionist? Do you back the Zionist? Do you back uh, the Jew outside of these kind of considerations? Um, do you pay the debt in a different way? What it means to hold yourself morally responsible for, for the Holocaust, at least historically, on today's um, crimes that Israel is committing in the Gaza Strip. That's, does that moral responsibility extend to the Palestinians as the victims of the victims in the seen from the German eyes or seen from the German gaze, uh, as what Edward Said once called the Jew of, you know, uh, the Palestinians are the Jews of the Jews, you know. Mm. So does that extend to the Palestinians or does that stop within or you confine it or foreclose it only uh, uh, in terms of backing Israel as a state and its security through how it self-defines? Does that extend, for instance, to mutations, ideological mutations within Israel? So does that mean that Germany will come and fight a war on behalf of Bing Vir, for instance, tomorrow? Uh, not the liberal socialist Zionist, not the, uh, you know, the more acceptable form of Zionism with its European, uh, you know, face, but you know the religious fundamentalist Zionism that you know is also uh, running amok in 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 Palestine. What does that mean? Will, will Germany uh, come and also back somebody like Bing Vir or Smotrich who are outrightly saying they want to ethnically cleanse, who they want to disappear the Palestinian, they want to, you know, wipe out all Palestinians. And despite the fact that we saw in the current moment also all of the Israeli, you know, political machinery saying the same thing. So it, in many ways, I, I, I do think that this, this, this conscious choice of backing Israel says a lot about, you know, the choice that this collective European uh, Imaginary did at some point. Uh, it's 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 a convenient choice. It's a convenient choice because, first of all, there's a particular destination to the form of debt relationship you create, and it's Israel. Um, it's a state that has its own interest. You know, like any other state, it has its economic, political interest. It has its uh, national security consideration. It has its politics. It's a, it's a state that you can talk to. It's not an abstract notion or a world that is diverse like uh, the Jewish world. So it's convenient to make your amends only through uh, the state of Israel. And it's also convenient because within Zionism, there's also currents that are, you know, um, that echo, if we want, this German national socialist past. In its practices and the techniques of domination that it also imposes on the Palestinians, and I think on some level here, um, you know, I always question the fact that you know a lot of people when they talk about you know German and European and you know they're looking at Palestine, they can't see. They say that they can't see. They're blinded by this collective guilt. You know, 
they can't hear. So they can't listen to the cries and voices of the Palestinians because they're blinded. There's something preventing them. There's an obstacle preventing them. For me, I do think that that's one possible, you know, way of relating to this is that because I feel guilty about what we've done to the Jewish, this memory of the Holocaust, this memory of anti-Semitism, that there's something that makes me reserved about hearing Palestinians and questioning whatever they tell me, you know? And that's true. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like somebody, uh, uh, you know, trying to be, uh, you know, encountering, uh, I don't know, uh, the Bible, but wants to find the contradictions within the Bible. Somebody who's, uh, you know, you know, looking at something and, 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 and is always ready to critique it. He's entering already and encountering a Palestinian on, on the basis of critiquing the Palestinians. And finding any problem with what they're saying—that's that's probably true. That, that, that this kind of line exists. That somehow there's an obstacle because of that history of Europeans seeing what's happening in in, in in Palestine. That's part of it. But I do think that you know that is not the whole equation, and I think that is already embedded in the choice that the German state made long time ago in 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 practicing a politics of depth uh, of depth exclusively through the through the relationship with the zionist state is that it's it has chosen a a a also a way to absolve itself from its own history through allowing its own victims to become oppressors and through you know making sure that through that process that it can tell its own self its own if we want guilt that provides some sort of moral you know burden and moral responsibility it can absolve itself from that guilt because it can look at, at israel and it can see israel transforming itself slowly and steadily into a state that is known for its security and surveillance systems for its uh, weaponry for its uh, uh, development of all of these different technologies of dominations and control of having an ai system that decides who it kills in gaza and what to hit in gaza and what to target in gaza of you know becoming this uh, paranoid state that looks at everything as a threat and at the same time that practices all these forms of, of murder in the 21st century in the open. And by the way, you know, I mean, the Europeans are the biggest donors to things like uh, Human Rights Watch. And, you know, these are the people that, you know, document the crime, no? So there's somebody who's always documenting crimes, Beit Salem and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and all of these human rights organizations that come after the crime and document it and make sure that we have records of everything that is being committed in Palestine. And yet, and yet, uh, I don't think uh, Europe would be interested in stopping. I mean, that's what politics proved. And it's not because of collective get that burden. It's because I think at some level, allow the Jews, our victims, as embodied within the Zionist uh, version of this mutation and reaction to anti-Semitism that existed in Europe. Uh, specifically in the 19th and in 20th century, but it has a longer history than that. To run amok, to 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 show us more of what they can commit against the Palestinian people.
um and i think that that is that is a that is in a way the way that this kind of uh european guilt is 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 removed it's it's you know you meet and encounter a place where you can unburden yourself from uh from the crimes that you committed against the jews in the in the mid 20th century by allowing the jews to commit crimes in the 20 and 21st century and they continue now in gaza it's you know it's an underline it's going really uh, fast and intense and that's why i don't think that it's only a matter of not listening and not hearing and not being able to look at the victim in the face i think it's a matter of seeing and hearing and taking pleasure taking deep pleasure in the fact that your own victims are now oppressors and that it's not something unique to yourself uh, in the mid 20th century that made you do what you committed at least in terms and this runs a bit contradictory to some of the claims that a lot of the Germans and Europeans say when it comes to the Holocaust that it's a you know it's a singular event. There's no uh, other event that resembles it. There's no other genocide that resembles it because of its character, because of how it's done, its industrial nature, you know, um, the method, the technique that was used, and to some degree, of course, I mean, every event at the end is unique and has its own particular singular you know elements that exceed all other you know comparisons. But also in many ways, you cannot compare with. With the Holocaust, and you know, nobody is allowed in Europe to actually do some sort of comparison because comparison is seen. Comparison, in of itself, even if you um, sustain or maintain any type of uniqueness to each event, any type of comparative approach is seen as an equivalence. I mean, I never, you know, you know, you, you can study logic and you can study a lot of, you know, the, and Germans are famous for their philosophers, and, and a lot of them had lot to do with the development of logic so i mean it's it's strange to me that comparison is seen as an equivalence almost immediately when it comes to anybody mentioning the holocaust with any form of you know or any other form of ethnic cleansing genocide or um, you know crimes committed against uh, uh any other people in the world um you know it's not necessarily when you compare you're not necessarily trying to create any form of equivalence, but that memory of the Holocaust has been created as something that is so unique, so singular, that nothing else can match it up ever, ever again, in a way that also allows the crimes that are committed in Palestine to always be diluted. So there's two things operated here, operating here. On the one hand, you take delight that your victims are becoming oppressors. But on the other hand, these oppressors are never as oppressive as you were. So this is like, this is the, the, the contradictory element. So you're, you absolve yourself somehow, but you never reach that kind of moment where you rupture yourself from the burden, you know? So you're, you're always burdened because there's this singular unique event called the Holocaust. And no thing can match with it, no matter, you know, in terms of, the method of killing in terms of its unique industrial nature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, um, you take delight in seeing your, 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 you know, your victims becoming oppressors, but they can never be as oppressive as you. They can never, you know, match. And this is what's so dangerous for us Palestinians, because I think that it, you know, on a psychological level, if we analyze it like that, 
uh, unless the Israelis commit a, a holocaust, you know, uh, something that resembles the industry, you know, they grab us, they put us together, and they start, you know, gassing us and then burning us, you know, replicating that method. The, the, our claims for any form of crimes committed on us will always be not enough to get this European subjectivity to feel any sense of guilt or any sense of moral responsibility that extends to the Palestinian subject and figure. It will always meet this obstacle of, I need my victims to become oppressors, but they're never oppressive enough. They're never oppressive enough, yeah. I mean, it's this, this European collective guilt, which like you said, isn't really blinded um, to Israel's actions, but fundamentally plays a role in the self-absolvement mechanism um, is also interesting because what's in my understanding and, and in my reading of this, it's not the crimes themselves of the Holocaust that the Europeans find objectionable, but the, but the victims of the Holocaust. This is, the Holocaust was a manifestation of European criminality, which has existed long before the Holocaust, um, in a way came home to roost. And this was what was so objectionable about the Holocaust and also what plays a role and makes it so exclusive and makes the memory of the Holocaust so exclusive and incomparable to anything else. Because the lessons of never again and the lessons of human rights and the lessons of history were never really learned. It's, it's a situation where the crimes themselves are not objectionable. What is objectionable is who gets to commit those crimes and who gets to uh, be at the receiving end of those crimes. Don't you think? No, of course. I mean, there, I mean, there, there is, there is a level of, of, you know, the crime being, for example, spatially in Europe, the Holocaust. No? So that crime took place within Europe, and, and that is one element to it. Then it also targeted people that are part of the European fabric, Europeans. So, I mean, European Jews were Europeans, so targeted Europeans, um, you know, on the basis of, of course, othering them, uh, you know, creating them as untouchable, undesirable, etc. Uh, a lot of these racist tropes that, you know, uh, existed and continue to exist, of course. Um, so there's that uniqueness of how can us, the civilized European, the ones that bear the uh, project of enlightenment, of rationality, of science, of uh, you know bringing civilization to the world. That's how colonialism was also for a long time justified. No, that uh, there's on a civilizing mission. Um, that Europeans would themselves commit such a crime um, within the boundaries of Remember, I mean, of course, like the Holocaust, you know, was initiated by national socialism, etc. But a lot of European people participated in it. So it's, it doesn't really confine itself, for instance, in, in, in Germany only. It's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, the crime festers across the European subjectivity as a collective either by ignoring what was happening or by not caring or by participating or by actually, you know, helping the, the Nazis at that moment in committing these crimes. 
um, that also didn't target only Jews, by the way, it targeted other people as well. Mm -hmm. um, so in many instances, yeah, that particularly is like, how can we face the world as Europeans? The ones who now, you know, as Hegel, you know, history is moving towards Europe, uh, said, you know, the direction of history and its culmination and civilizational claims. And now we, Europeans, commit such a horrendous crime within the boundaries of Europe and against a population of Europeans. So, yeah, a lot of the singularity and uniqueness of how the Holocaust is treated has to do with this kind of, um, uh, of this rupture of this kind of enlightenment uh, 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 moment in, in European history. And of course, Adorno and the Frankfurt School, for instance, they make this point, you know, like, that in fact, instrumental rationality, which is very integral part of, 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 of the European Enlightenment, is responsible for the Holocaust itself, for how it was operated, etc. That it's not an aberration, it's it's a culmination of this kind of dialectic of enlightenment that you know uh, the Frankfurt School looked at and, and saw that within the seeds of European thinking and civilizational claims existed the, also this kind of ugly horrendous face that you know uh, uh, rose uh, or was embodied in the, the holocaust uh, as a crime that was done against uh, a defenseless people in, in in within the boundaries of europe within the world war ii and uh, preceding that so yeah i mean we can we can say that there is that kind of like um that level of thinking about the holocaust is that it's a shameful event because of where it happened, the place, and against who it happened um, as a people, not necessarily against all other peoples, because you know a lot of the colonial history, a lot of these countries don't deal with a lot of the massacres they committed in you know Africa, or you know they they don't reckon with this kind of you know moral burden and moral responsibility that Europe has in committing a lot of genocides and massacres. Uh, across the globe uh, in various places and in various instances. In fact, there's still a persistent of colonial relations, whether it's through economic extraction and surplus. So there's there's still that level of, you know, of, uh, of blindness when it comes to a lot of the other historical crimes committed by Europeans across the globe. And also when it comes to the Palestinians, of course, um, as the victims of the victims, um, as the people who were are oppressed now by the victims of Europeans, at least uh, in one version of, of the response to anti-Semitism uh, embodied within Zionism as a, as a means to protect the Jews from uh, the horror that the Europeans can inflict. You know, let's remember, I mean, when Israel was conceived, the, the only reason why it wasn't conceived as a state that is possibly within Europe itself, first of all, because there was rampant colonialism at that moment. And second of all, because there was something called the Jewish problem because Europeans couldn't deal with uh, having a Jewish population within their own boundaries. Um, there's a lot of hate, a lot of you know uh, mythology around Jews and their role in their societies. They were constructed as a mythic uh, enemy in many instances, and that led to the fact that you know a lot of Jews said that we should have a state of their own. I mean, look. On a very abstract level, you know, anybody can uh, sympathize with that, you know, sentiment. Uh, 
you know, on the level of, of, you know, we should protect ourselves, have our own state, you know, as a self-defense posture. But the problem with it is that also Europeans were not ready, for instance, uh, to displace any white Europeans within Europe to create a state for Jews, no, uh, European Jews. So all the thinking about, you know, having a state was always, you know, part of this colonial mentality where that saw the land of other peoples as, as one that Jews, European Jews can go and claim, force themselves on, uh, invest in, and then displace the original inhabitants. In our case, Palestine was chosen for strategic, imperialist, and other reasons as a place where the Jews uh, would uh, enact or resurrect the state. Of course, within this kind of, you know, atheistic leadership of, and it's important to, to mention that they're atheists because they didn't, they didn't believe in Judaism itself. They're secular uh, uh, Jews who did not believe in God, but also claimed that this land is uh, uh, their land based on the presence of, you know, Jews in the Holy Land at some point in our history. And I here I just want to, you know, remind people, because I think Palestinians also have a problem with this, is that the entire history of Palestine is our history. You know, like that's one of the issue issues that sometimes we tend to give up on in, in a sense that when when people mention that Jews were here, fine, yes, Jews were here, and we are their descendants. Uh, you know, we're the descendants of the Christians that were here. We're descendants of Jews. And the Jewish history that was here is our history. It's not, you know, necessarily anybody else's history. It's it's also our history. It's part of our blood. It's part of our makeup. It's part of our uh, culture. It's a part of our dialect in terms of the, how the Arabic that we speak is tied to the to the previous languages that uh, inhabited Palestine. Even Hebrew was an old Palestinian language. I mean, it's not the modern Hebrew that was constructed for the purposes of creating this uh, nationalist uh, state. So I don't think that even us as Palestinians recognize the importance of also not trying to say, oh, there were not Jews in Palestine, but in fact, that, that is part and parcel of our own history and our own makeup uh, historically. Uh, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam, it's not like Palestinians, as some would claim, you know, just came from all of a sudden from, you know, 1,400 years ago uh, after Islam came into the region. That is not true. Most Palestinians were and remain uh, you know, like uh, peasants that, you know, lived in villages and didn't care much about who's controlling them because they lived within a very self-contained uh, system. Very peaceful people, by the way. Didn't have an army in their history, um, you know. Were not known for their fighting powers uh, uh, or their huge military and successive battles. Um, generally, this very, uh, uh, you know, very peasant society. Some Bedouins, a mix of all the cultures and traditions and histories of peoples: Syriacs, uh, Aramaics, uh, Hebrewites, you know, uh, Christians, Muslims. That you know engulf this land and we're the inheritors of that you know uh it's not you know anybody coming from europe claiming that uh, that part even if he has a religious connection to the land doesn't mean that the land in any way is, is there and i think what for me was interesting always that some at least europeans recognize this uh, you know somebody like deleuze for instance writes more you know properly about how 
first of all, Europe did not pay its debt to the Jews. That it's failing to pay its debt to the Jews. It's failing to take moral responsibility for what it committed uh, against the Jews. And that's important, that by choosing this kind of course of of the politics of debt of backing Israel, Europe is also conveniently serving its own geostrategic political interest. Um, it's backing a colonial uh, state in the midst of the Arab world that provides some sort of security, whether mythic or uh, or real, uh, uh, on you know containing uh, West Asia, containing the Islamic threat of having a militarist state within the Arab world that divides us, etc. Whether this is a real threat or a mythic threat, that is part of at least the equation that is placed here. It's also self conveniently. Uh, you know, self uh, um, or supporting its own, you know, economic needs, uh, relationship to the Arab world, specifically through the American empire in terms of the, you know, oil and the finances that tie the Gulf states with, you know, uh, the U.S. And Israel plays a big role in all of this as well. So in many ways, it you know, Israel is or Europe is not choosing a way to actually pay debt uh, to the Jews. It's choosing a way to self-serve its imperialist interest. It's choosing a way that absolves it by seeing its own victims becoming oppressors. It's also playing, you know, um, and ignoring the real pain and the historical narrative of the people who historically belong to this land and who remain steadfast on it and who remain, um, you know, as long as there is, you know, a Palestinian, a Palestinian will say Palestine is for the Palestinians. And, and that's, that's what Deleuze, for instance, recognized. An indigenous population was displaced to create the space for a Jewish state, which means that we're not paying our debts to the Jews as Europeans. And it means that now we've turned also uh, another people into uh, victims of, uh, of Europe uh, embodied in the figure of the Palestinians, which means that, that now there's two debts that in fact Europe has to pay. And of course, our debt, it's still not recognized and there's no monuments around it, and there's no history around it, and there is no, uh, you know, politics, if you want, around it. But I think, you know, we'll we'll see how history moves, but I think one day will come when, you know, Europe will also have to reckon with its own moral responsibility for supporting and uh, sustaining this ethno-national state that has ethnically cleansed and attempted to wipe Palestinians uh, on multiple occasions, continues to do this through this ongoing Nakba, as we say, or this ongoing ethnic cleansing campaign. Um, it still haven't done it, but I think it's also an important point for uh, Europe itself to reckon with the fact that at this particular moment in history, it did not even really um, uh, meet the moral responsibility with its own uh, crime because it's chosen this very perverse way of paying its own debt, you know? A very, you know, so I think that's that's at least one, one element of it as well, yeah. Yeah, and it's the kind, I mean, uh, this was brilliant, but um, it's the kind of debt that you can only pay by making sure this never happens again. And so, doing anything other than ensure that it never happens again just accumulates 
um, that debt. But I really, I think it's really important that you made the point that also while guilt and debt are factors in Europe's endorsement and direct support of Israel's genocide in Gaza, which also is not limited to Israel's genocide in Gaza, but Israel's settler colonial project throughout Palestine in general, which didn't start three months ago. I mean, Europe has always been an active partner in that. Um, but uh, Shaka Jarrar, an associate editor of Hibir, an independent uh, Jordanian magazine, uh, recently made the brilliant point um, in a piece he wrote in Arabic about, um, I'm going to quote from it because it's really brilliant. And I think particularly because we're talking about Europe and guilt, guilt is not really an element in the US support uh, for the Zionist project. Um, and what Shakir says is that uh, American political and military leaders are, I'm quoting here, American political and military leaders are directly involved in overseeing the battle. American weapons flow to Israel via an uninterrupted military air bridge, a physical embodiment of the bridge that colony that the colony represents as an extension of Western and American interests in our region. No friendly or enemy eye can mistake today that the United States is in the heart of the war, and that is what it is doing, not and that what it's doing, it's not biased or supportive as it is waging the battle on its own behalf, not on behalf of Israel. So I really think, you know, I really wanted to mention this point that one, you know, Shakir writes, one no longer needs to muster a lot of evidence to say that the United States is not an ally of the enemy of the Palestinian people, but rather it is the enemy of the Palestinian people as it is the enemy of all the peoples of uh, uh, this region. Um, we got, uh, you know, I got a little uh, carried away but I think I think this is this is important because uh, you mentioned throughout you know your your um, descriptions here the the various contradictions within uh, how the the Zionist uh, project views itself. It's indigenous, but it's also colonial, um, and the the it's it's a you know, they left Europe as settlers, but they arrived in Palestine. They left Europe as refugees, but they arrived in Palestine as settlers. Um, uh, also, Israel's constantly trying to sell itself as the safest place for Jews in the world. It's so safe and so important to have so that Jews in Brooklyn and other places all over the world can have a spare country uh, at the expense of uh, the native Palestinian population. But at the same time, it is always already victimized in a region of in a region of Arabs that constantly uh, are bidding for its demise. So, th so these are all the contradictions that are constantly playing in the Zionist imagination of itself. And I think that, I mean, I don't know how much you would assign this the, these contradictions to the ongoing, I mean, Israeli hysteria of killing everything that moves in Gaza. Um, I mean, of course, part of this is um, is the strategic and military defeat that uh, the Palestinian resistance dealt Israel on October 7th. But also there is something to be said about the failure of the Israeli military's own response. Uh, I mean, we are learning now the Electronic Intifada has been uh, publishing a lot 
this is this is a topic that has been completely ignored in uh, mainstream media. I mean, it's even starting to get acknowledged in liberal uh, media uh, in Israel that Israel killed uh, what seems to be a lot of their own civilians on October 7th. Uh, how much, you know, how much do you think this is, I mean, we're shifting gears a little bit, but do you think that the this initial frustration of their own actions, of their own actions of killing their own people and being responsible for a lot of the carnage that's happened in the kibbutzim, particularly in kibbutz Be'eri, uh, how much do you think this is contributing to their hysteric response in Gaza? And I also want to mention something else. I want you to talk about these two things uh, together. You wrote this fantastic piece, um, excuse me, in, in Rusted Radishes, uh, a Beirut literary and art journal. Uh, the essay was uh, titled Crosshairs, um, but I much preferred the title of the episode that you were on on Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, The Sniper's Gaze, or The Gaze of the Sniper. And you wrote, um, I'm going to quote here, the sniper is like a lone onlooker who inspects from the shadows. He enjoys the detachment from his subjects, akin to a spectator witnessing a couple's squabble. He briefly perceives them as mirror images of his own petty disputes with his lover. We are all distant observers at times, casually watching with delight a stranger in a cafe or noting a neighbor's late arrival. The sniper's first pleasure is the pleasure that distance allows. Yet the sniper's kinship with his target ends where his, lovely, where his livelier role begins. With chilling precision, he selects his mark, keenly attuned to the impending kill. In his imposition, he finds a dark pleasure as he stubbornly cosplays the angel of death. Despite his role within a rigid military hierarchy, he singularly claims credit for his actions, convinced of his unique artistry and the mastery of his craft. Like a poet who relishes in obscurity and seclusion, the sniper thrives on the stories of others, while remaining on the spectator god bench. Returning to the sanctum of the barracks, the euphoria starts to erode, and perhaps only then does he contemplate the justification of his performance. Are his targets less than human or merely foes? Could they be more ske mere skeletons lacking souls? Sometimes the mere pleasure of a successful hit surpasses the need for queries or moral reckoning. I mean, uh, since the beginning of Israel's extermination campaign in Gaza, there's been a lot of admission, a lot of teeth out moments, you know, moments for from Israeli society of their own viciousness. There's been this like shameless admission of of how completely dehumanized uh, they, how completely uh, dehumanizing they are of Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, uh, uh, experts have been saying that this is one of those times where actually genocide or the intent to commit genocide is not really difficult to prove because Israeli leaders, military leaders, pundits, journalists have been so out in the open about how completely dehumanized they see Palestinians. There's, you know, we all remember the very disturbing, very disturbing uh, video of Israeli children singing for the 
annihilation of Palestinians in Gaza. This is a video that the Electronic Intifada captured after it was posted on Israel's public broadcaster, Khan. And the Electronic Intifada subtitled and posted the video, which was uh, posted by Israel's public broadcaster and then deleted. But then YouTube uh, removed it from our channel. Uh, there's also been this TikTok video going around of a lady who claims to be parts of the Israeli army. And it's, a, it's also an extremely disturbing video. It was watched by many people. And she is, you know, this video was live. It was recorded live. She's sitting with another lady and they're talking to, I think, an Arab man. And she, she expresses that she, you know, she's very proud of the fact that she killed two Palestinians. And when she's confronted and she's, you know, she's asked by this man, you, you know, you're proud of killing two Palestinians. And there's this very disturbing um, pleasure in her face where she says, I want to kill more, more, more. Uh, Eddie Cohen, who is uh, an Israeli so-called journalist, had a poll on his uh, Twitter or X account the other day where he contemplated and asked his followers what they think uh, of uh, the idea of assassinating Wa'al al-Dahdouh, uh, the Al Jazeera chief um, correspondent in the Gaza Strip, who Israel killed multiple members of his family in uh, October. I mean, there is something to be said. I want you to talk about this in contrast with what we mentioned earlier about this Israeli pleasure in jouissance that they seem to derive from the killing of the Palestinian. I mean, I'd like you to define this, this term jouissance that I just used. I'm probably mispronouncing it because it seems to be a fundamentally insatiable desire that that the Zionists have towards the killing of the Palestinian. And I think, you know, this can be said about, I mean, the Israelis seem to be enacting a fundamentally insatiable fantasy through the killing of the Palestinian. I mean, we see this with the campaigns of assassinating Palestinian literary giants and poets and academics and literateurs and scientists and doctors, they're really assassinating Gaza's intelligentsia. Uh, and an example of this is Israel's murder of beloved writer, writer educator, and mentor, uh, Rifat al-Ara'ir. I mean, it, there was just something just unbelievably disturbing where uh, it was not enough that they assassinated him, but they even tried to go a step further and commit a character assassination even after his death. And there seems to be this uh, this um, this dissatisfaction where fundamentally because Palestinians and their enemy, the Zionists, have a complete... Um, uh, disagreement over what this death can produce. Palestinians know to some extent that death is not the end, that they are, that they are you know, waging a, a, a war of liberation against their enemy, where Israel refuses to learn the lesson that killing Palestinians is not going to put them down to their knees and make them beg for the resistance to stop. In fact, it is only going to fuel them to, to resist more until the Zionist enemy is defeated. Can you talk about 
where this pleasure comes from. It's been completely inexplicable to me. I mean, historically, oppressors have tried to hide their crimes. The Israelis have entire telegram channels where they boast of their crimes. They share pictures and very disturbing pictures and videos of mutilated Palestinian bodies. Can you can you can you explain what kind of illness is at play here? I mean, uh, I mean, look, we we underestimate, you know, um, the fact that Israelis are subconsciously or unconsciously aware that they stole somebody else's land. No? Like we we tend to, you know, think that because they have this narrative because they have this ideology around it, because they feel that they're indigenous because of, you know, Jewish claim or Jewish history or bringing forth the Bible. I think there's a lot of, you know, evidence also that points out that when Israelis are kind of honest with themselves about the character of their enemy, which is in this case, the Palestinian, that they realize, yeah, we're going to do an injustice because we're taking somebody else's land. And that's a fact that many of them have placed front and center with a lot of racism, of course. I mean, that I mean, they're backward people, we're gonna develop it, or they're you know, uh, they're people that are undeserving of this land or people that are uh, that would ruin it. We we're gonna turn it into a, a you know a blooming uh, oasis in the midst of a big desert or although Palestine has parts that are more deserty it's actually not a desert anyways I mean my own my own my own take is that when you're a thief I mean and you're caught you know I think that a lot of people tend to double down on 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 their theft that's one element of psychologically speaking in a sense, if I can make my theft legitimate by making the person I stole from admit that it's my land, that's why there's an obsession within the Israeli political discourse of getting Palestinians to always symbolically surrender. It's not enough that Mahmoud Abbas, for instance, security cooperates. It's not enough that Mahmoud Abbas, for instance, you know, sustains a political system that makes possible the expansion of illegal settlements in the West Bank. Mahmoud Abbas has to also, you know, recognize that Israel is both Jewish and, uh, you know, uh, is a state for the Jews only, for instance, or a Jewish state. You know, the PLO recognizes Israel's right to exist, but no, there's need to be more, more, more recognition, always more recognition. Of course, it's politically expedient as well, because you don't want negotiations etc but it has also this deep-seated element of always uh, getting the arab and the palestinian to admit that we are undeserving of this land or that we're happy to live within your domain and your uh, within your uh, sovereignty that we you know we uh, don't have any political claim and th so if they can get us from if they can get this from us maybe they can ease this uh, sense of, of of hatred they feel towards themselves for having stolen it, and for me, I think it's it's very important that this is centered because I think in my encounters, even personally, um, uh, when the Israeli sees a Palestinian, not everybody. I'm not talking about everybody. I'm not talking about everybody's experience, but I think that is part of the anxiety that a Palestinian 
brings forth only by being seen by an Israel. The, the idea that there's somebody else on this land that is disrupting my own sense of security, that my sovereignty is now whole and complete. So killing me physically as a Palestinian or killing me symbolically is something that I need. So I need to turn this Palestinian who claims Palestine into, I don't know, a citizen that would obey the law and will be happy. And whenever he says anything to object, I'll tell him, go to Syria, go to Gaza, go to, as they do with the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Or, uh, you know, in, in, in Gaza where you're, 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 you're turned into a confined space where economy is determined for you, where you have the siege uh, alongside Egypt and you and you claim uh, because of some sort of threat that exists in the strip in terms of the resistance, et cetera, that you're going to create this uh, siege and sustain it without looking for any political solution. Remember that one of the elements that Israel is incapable of learning, as you claimed, is that you know there's no political solution to this for them. There's only a military solution to us. There's only a security solution. And there's never a real discussion within Israeli society about a political solution. And when it happened, they killed the person that even dared to open it, which was Yitzhak Rabin. They assassinated him. You know? I'm not saying that Yitzhak Rabin was a hero of the Palestinians. He wasn't. He was a Zionist. He didn't want the full Palestinian state to come into being he saw also as a convenient uh, agreement. But even when you had this small current within some of Israel's intelligentsia and elite, and specifically it's old Ashkenazi elite that saw, okay, we got 70, 70% of the land. We have now a weak Palestinian side embodied in the PLO that claims to represent the Palestinians exiled, and they want to return to Palestine. And now we have an opportunity, historic opportunity, after the first intifada, to, for in, to try to find a territorial solution that is guarantees our existence for a long time and also meets some of the demands of the Palestinians. So, but the minimal demands, and we can at least through peace create a, you know a new uh, horizon for the sustainment of of Israel. But even that, even that, I think in Israeli society there was still um, those that saw that. Israel will only be complete when it finishes cleansing uh, the West Bank, the Galili, the Naqab even. And remember, I mean, a lot of the Bingavir people, they also want to kick out the Palestinian citizens of Israel. They want to cleanse people from Gaza. They want to cleanse people from the West Bank. But I, I do believe that even if that happens, let's imagine that all the Palestinians disappear, that that will not be the end of it. No, why is it there? Like, you know, there's a whole, there's Jordan, there's <laughs> there's uh, Syria, there's like all kinds of places. There's a, there's a, there's a very, uh, in, in, you know, there's a very important spatial, uh, expansive desire as well that goes along with this. I mean, it doesn't speak to every current within Zionism. Some are more happy um, to stay within the confines of Tel Aviv and on the beach and say that this is ours and, you know, let's divorce from the Palestinians and have a two-state solution and stuff like that. Um, but in, in many instances, there's always going to be 
a, a current and a powerful current within Israel that sustains its its form of securitization, that is going to be the the the, the biggest uh, supporter of its militarism. I mean, remember that even in Gaza, many of the people and the soldiers that are being killed come from this nationalist now uh, religious camp. Mm-hmm. They come from the West Bank settlements. They come from uh, the frontier areas, um, and they're overrepresented in the regular military. They're overrepresented in the in the intelligence. They're overrepresented in every security branch within the Israeli state. Uh, beyond some uh, that they still haven't penetrated well, because there's also a war of you know if you want uh, position happening within the Israeli state where. Uh, strategically, a lot of the settler movement people are positioning themselves in, in, in places of power. And part of that is through this elite combat units that a lot of, you know, the more liberal Israelis are moving away from to like AI and high tech uh, warfare from Tel Aviv sanitized boardrooms. So they're doing the more, you know, the more uh, the programming um, that feeds into also their career later on in terms of, you know, uh, going into the civilian sector of high tech, while the, the, the people that are doing the combat, a lot of them come e- either f- either from the more marginalized groups within the Israeli state and society, or from this very ideological group, the national settler group, who are overrepresented in combat units like the Golani and the Nahal and others. What I'm trying to like at least lay out is that there's a never-ending expansionism embedded also within. Uh, Zionism. Now, does it have to always be professed? No, but will it will it still uh, sustain itself historically to the extent that even if it has a very successful project where it silences all Palestinians and get us all to symbolically surrender, or to physically leave, or get killed, whatever the options that they're giving us now, uh, that expansion will continue. And and I think. To me, that's why the the, the settler na- religious nationalist uh, sector represents a form of foreclosure. It's a, it's one of the most important elements, at least, of the ideological developments within Zionism itself. Because I think by embodying itself or embedding itself within religious discourse, then it doesn't have to do any kind of uh, weightlifting when it comes to logic or uh, or human rationality. It can can foreclose any claim to its land, expansion, to its view of the world through this very uh, uh, religious lens. And it can sustain the Zionist project through this religious lens that always existed, even it's in secular format. But now we have people that truly believe it, you know, that, that truly actually take it to heart, take it literally and 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 profess it in a way that forecloses like i don't care what you know any rational argument is made by two humans on the basis of the historical ownership of the land whatever it is there's that godly metaphysical element that imbues me with the right to this land and then i can foreclose my theft in this way for a lot of the liberal more progressive zionists it, it, the choice was either to dehumanize the palestinians to not see them as a, as a people in a political sense, or even in a in a in a in a cultural civilizational sense, so to de- demonize us in, in this way, uh, or 
in, in many ways to turn us into an enemy and an obstacle that needs to be overcome while maintaining some sort of empathy and sympathy to our position. That, you know, we're we're going to do you an injustice, but doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyways. No. So that, that, that was that was one of the, the elements. We're going to do it because we're we need to do it. This is how you know, this is how we solve our own problem, uh, our own history. And it's going to come on your expense and you just have to, you know, um, accept it because we're more powerful and more stronger and more uh, equipped militarily in a military sense. And we're going to fight and we're going to develop all these technologies that will sustain our domination and, and, and persist through it. Of course, this is a big illusion because that's what happened exactly on 7th of October. That barrier, that sense of security fell. And it fell in a way that never fell before, in a sense that in all of the history of, of Zionism, at least since its beginning, yes, there was always uh, uh, violence. And there's always, you know, episodes of intense violence since, you know, 1919, if you want, until today, and even before then, uh, between the Palestinians and the Zionist movement. But for the first time after claiming through what is called the war of independence or what we palestinians called the nakba which was an offensive action by the zionists themselves mostly you know, expanding their space cleansing villages etc and it was a difficult war a lot of zionists were killed in that war six thousand i think something like that number so it was a bloody you know war that uh resurrected what is now uh, the state of Israel, but it was still an offensive maneuver by them. This was the first time that, despite all of the sense of security that they had, uh, a very, a very big opening uh, occurred in their own sense of invincibility and power. It is as if, you know, everything they foreclose, whether through, you know. Uh, ideologically or materially or in terms of its own security apparatus just opened and in that moment that opening you saw the entire zionist uh, society become genocidal become uh, highly you know uh, thirsty for killing because that's the only way they can feel secure again it's not a revenge by the way it's not in a in a very like uh, it's not a vengeful pathology in a sense of you killed us, we're going to kill you. It goes deeper than that. I mean, I think vengeance, you know, we could have said that vengeance plays a role in some sort of, on, on some, you know, on some level. But I think it is not vengeance. It's, 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 it goes deeper than vengeance in the sense that this pleasure that you called in killing, this pleasure in seeing Palestinian pain, this pleasure of playing God, this pleasure of choosing on um, Twitter or Facebook if we should kill Wa'al Dahduh or we shouldn't kill Wa'al Dahduh. This sense of unbridled power, um, not having enough, killing and not having enough with, with, with killing, not stopping. You know, like there's always a moment, even in any massacre. You know, there's a moment that people stop. And there's a lot of stories, even from the 7th of October, where, you know, Israeli civilians 
talk about Palestinian fighters almost killing them, but then letting them go. Or like, there's a moment where you like, you know, even if you're in like this fest, uh, you know, fest of killing, you know, sometimes people do tend to also stop or, you know, feel like a sense we had enough. You know? But I think from a, from from what happened from 7th October, when it comes to the Israelis, there's this kind of like very deep desire for a long time. It has been repressed to get rid of the Palestinian people and the Palestinian problem. And 7th of October opened that desire and need. Again, in a way that we haven't uh, seen for a long time. It opened it up and made it a collective uh, desire and need. And I think, you know, in Israeli showrooms and media, the only discussion is that about, you know, should we have killed from the beginning 100,000 or should we kill 20? Like there's that kind of politics of uh, rhetorical surpassing of each one saying, should we create plagues? Should we get people to get sick? Should we make them hungry more? You know, there's all of the elements going into this, this deep repressive, um, repressed desire to get rid of us that for a long time, Israel had since 19, at least 48, had to accept the fact that there are Palestinians that live within its boundaries and that it cannot now do any sort of ethnic cleansing campaign for international reasons, for moral backing, for whatever it is. Now that all opened up. You you guys wanted to change the equation. Now we're going to change it. And now we're going to create this uh, Nakba. We're going to roll the Nakba. We're going to destroy everything. We're going to... Yeah. I mean, that's that's what I was trying to say, at least in, in, on that. Is that, yeah, 7th of October presented this opening where a lot of this kind of repressed feeling of seeing the Palestinian and being burdened by this feeling that there's somebody else on this land that you know reminds you of your theft whether it's subconsciously or not uh, that now it's the moment that you can just you know if this palestine disappears then perhaps i can feel better with myself you know? and 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 feel a need of, and that's what happens and that's why you see a discourse even among people within for instance haaretz and you know leftists uh, very ideological. I mean, the entire enterprise becomes very devoted in terms of backing the military operations, talking about military successes that are, generally speaking, over-exaggerated and overblown to sustain the campaign. Talking about the destruction of the entire Gaza Strip and destroying much of its built environment in a way that doesn't justify any, any, any that is not justified militarily speaking, let's put it that way. Mass killing of people within their homes, um, purposefully and also without any military objective. Because what we're discovering, and this is one of the things that people don't say much about, is that the entire apparatus of resistance, most of it, exists under the ground. So all these buildings are destroying. All these roads that they're, you know, they, they're actually most of them are just civilian targets. They have no, they don't even have any kind of uh, military uh, um, uh, objective whatsoever. It, it was a mass killing of civilians from air. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because there's a space, there's a separate space under the ground for the resistance. So what it tells us, it tells us that 
at least from 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 framing this. And, and for me, it's important to situate and recognize that the Israelis recognize that they they are thieves. They do recognize that. I I I don't take the the point that through this ideological maneuvering and jiggling, that they don't think between themselves at night before they sleep that they haven't stolen this land. They might be indifferent to it. They might have racialized it in a way that it makes them feel better, but they might have foreclosed it religiously. They might have created whatever uh, ideological apparatus that supplants or supports this notion that this is our land in, in framing it, or this is a need, a Jewish need based on our memory or vulnerability of having a state of our own, a you know an insurance policy so if europeans turn mad again that we have a state outside of europe that can uh, preserve our existence all of that is is fine that exists but they do recognize that at the same time that they're thieves and that they've stolen land from its indigenous people and the only way they can feel better about that theft and not being exposed for them being thieves uh, is by killing Palestinian subjectivity itself, whether through rendering us people who do not have any political uh, subjectivity whatsoever, except within the domain of Israel, that accept it and live within its uh, boundaries as a defeated uh, individuals, uh, dispersed with no political claim, or by taking out uh, even the mere physical presence of Palestinians from uh, uh, from the window. And I think that's that's why it's so easy, it's so acceptable for even the U.S. and others to see its own state uh, ally, its own, uh, let's say, uh, that is bringing it ahead again. So I agree with Cheka, for instance, in what you said. But what Israel is doing is also bringing headache to the American empire. I mean, the American empire, of course, is part of this war. And once the security of the state of Israel, once to sustain the state of Israel, but they could disagree on the method of doing that, of, of how do you sustain Israel? How do you preserve it? Uh, what form of political solution can you? So there are, there's, there's forms or, or places of disagreement. And I think right now, also the state of Israel is embarrassing its, uh, its ally, but it's almost as if it's acceptable. Like, look, go do your evil. And we're just going to look the other way around and pretend nothing is happening and back you up. I mean, that's that's the relationship that is at least occurring publicly for us. We don't know what's happening in closed rooms, but at least publicly, that's that's the relationship between Biden and Netanyahu. You know, pretending that there's really military targets around, you know, the mass killing of civilians and all of that uh, that is happening. So I do agree with Shaker that, you know, the empire wants to sustain Israel for its own, you know, accumulation of an extraction of surplus for its own, um, you know, historical and cultural affinity to also this feeling that, um, you know, America is a settler society, so Israel is a settler society. So there's that kind of like historical echoing happening as well. There's also this Christian Zionism that is imbued within American culture that is also, you know, um, displace onto Israel as uh, as the state that will bring the Jews together and there's going to be a war for Armageddon and all the Jews will be killed and it's a very anti-Semitic position but Netanyahu has no problem with it but there's also a lot of you know um, you know geostrategic interest tied uh, to sustaining a state that divides the Arab world that prevents the 
the Arabs from having concrete real sovereignty, remaining countries that are highly dependent on American and European power and neo-colonial policies. You know, so so there's a lot of different elements to this and a lot of different theories. And to be honest, I never really uh, uh, took a position. I, don't, I think there's an amalgamation of, 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 of this. But for me, it always seemed inflated, you know, in many ways. Because also, you can make a very good argument that Israel is a burden on the empire. That even from an imperial point, there is that argument. For instance, Mersheimer and Walt make it. You no, know, they make that the, the, the only reason the U.S. supports uh, Israel in the way that it supports it has to do with just electoral politics and lobby, uh, the lobby as a factor that provides an obstacle. So, so there's a lot of different, um, you know, theories of why America has that kind of uh, support uh, and sustained support for Israel. It's different than Europe, of course, indeed. It's less burdened by, you know, issues of moral responsibility and collective guilt. And it has to do with empire and empire management, as well as these different layers, electoral, cultural, that we have spoken about and historical. Um, and it sustains uh, a relationship that, at its heart, also views the Palestinians as an obstacle as a people that need to be rendered uh, um, homeless, uh, a solution needs to be fine for the predicament, but at the end of the day, the priority is always given to the state of Israel and its existence, even on the expense of the Palestinians. The Americans don't haven't developed a lot of guilt around that, around what they, they have committed against the Palestinian people through this uh, unbridled support that they give Israel and through they haven't developed, but you see it sometimes. You see it even among some of the policymakers. There's some unease with what's happening with us, but again, it's like that. Oh, uh, it's a necessary evil. You know, you're just in the wrong place, and we you need to be taken out, um, or we don't want to listen to you too much because you disturb our own uh, sense of uh, place. Or they, of course, demonize you by turning you into an anti-Semitic, you know, or Nazi or Amalek's or it depends on the strategy that they want to uh, create uh, to make themselves feel better again about theft. And I think this is for me, you know, the central component of all of this. There's a, you know, I don't think you steal something and you're not aware you don't steal. I just don't believe that. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. that's very true. And I mean, you reminded me of this. Um interview that the New York Times did with it was, I watched it like on, a, on an Instagram reel and it was an interview with I think it was two or three uh, settlers who lived in the colonies near uh, in the south near near the Gaza Strip where uh, Palestinian resistance um, uh, you know penetrated a lot of these colonies on October 7th and um, in the video I mean you know not denying that uh, Palestinian uh, resistance fighters killed Israeli civilians that day. But in the video, um, you know, they're describing the horror of it and they're describing, you know, they're saying it was so horrific. But they, you know, one of them explains that Palestinian resistance fighters was in, her, you know, were in her house for many hours during that day. And she does not claim that they laid a finger on their heads, you know. 
But she does say that at some point she was so afraid that she prodded her husband, who was carrying a weapon, that he should just shoot her and their children in the head and get it over with. And this is the this is the only invocation of violence throughout the entire video, the interview with this woman, is that she is calling for her husband. She they, she doesn't even claim that the Palestinian resistance fighters um, attacked them or hurt them physically. Um, in the same video, the interview with these settlers, the moment that she starts crying was when she says, what was so painful that day, what was most painful that day, I don't remember exactly what she said, I'm paraphrasing, was how they moved around like they owned the place. And that to me was a great admission of exactly what you're describing, which is, this is precisely what tickled and opened the wound uh, of Zionism, is that there, there was this stark realization that you can pretend to own the land until your eyes turn blue, but ultimately, when you know, you're living so close to a caged population of 2.3 million people who you've never interacted with in your life, and in your life, you know, this is this was a this was a woman who seemed to be. I mean, she, she's a, she's a grown woman. She's definitely been alive for uh, more than 17 years. The the length of Israel's uh, blockade of the Gaza Strip. She must have witnessed Gaza being bombarded with uh, with Israeli uh, bunker buster bombs over the years. The many many massacres that happened in Gaza 2008, 2009, 2012, 2014, and I'm only mentioning the major ones. This was probably the first time that she's seen a Palestinian, okay, unless she's been to the West Bank, walking around an Israeli colony. And it was the first time she probably realized that ultimately this is what someone who owns the land looks like, right? And I think that's precisely what made it so emotive and so disturbing to her because it's just, you cannot wake a lion who's pretending to be asleep no matter how much you try. You know, you cannot feel that this land is yours when you have the internal and explicit and eternal knowledge that no matter how many children you have that are born here, uh, you came here as settlers and you stole someone else's land. And that's the only way you were able to establish those colonies. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, when I asked you this question about, about insatiability and the insatiable fantasy of, of Israeli settlers, I think you historicized it and contextualized it very well by talking about the insatiability for land. You know, this is really what it comes down to. I'm not, I did not ask that question out of any interest. You know, I'm, I'm radically disinterested in the moral rot of Israelis. I think uh, moral rot is... Uh, historically uninteresting. I, what, what really interested me about it is, is, is the psychological rot of boasting about it, of, of being so completely, uh, uh, of deriving such you know, sick pleasure from, from, from the killing of the native population. But it's fundamentally, uh, and I, I'm glad you, you know, brought us back to the materiality of it, it's a material insatiability for more land, which is something that can be said uh, you know, Israel is not unique in that. Israel, the Israel is a settler colonial project that is a blueprint of um, 
other set settler colonial projects in other places. What makes this a unique case is that it's one of the last remaining uh, uh, settler colonies that are that that have not yet been, you know, completely that have not completely taken over and and can still, you know, be defeated and reversed. Um, yeah. Well, tell me. No, I mean, I, I I agree with you. I mean, I think like it's. Um... I mean, there there was a historical element to it because Jews were deprived from in Europe from agriculture. No? I mean, uh, so Zionism was supposed to build this relationship with land. The kibbutz, the kibbutzim was a movement that was basically this kind of like uh, a Jewish yearning to be at one with land, not to be the city dweller, but to be uh, the agricultural. Uh, uh, peasant that works in the land that you know builds a new state through his own uh, immensement and, and, and labor uh, with land, and that also that labor with land will mean that at some point you will own the land. You know, like it's, it's also a colonial, you know, colonial uh, construction of ownership of land that has to do with whoever works on the land um, owns it. Um, you know, it goes to Locke and others who who, who who placed front and center. You know, the no the relationship between labor and time and effort placed on the land with with owning it, or with the idea of why people have the right to ownership. Of course, with Locke and others, there's always been a dismissal of other peoples. Um, so you know, who you include and fold within the people. Is a very limited uh, sense and that's why i think zionism is an inheritor of all the worst tendencies of racialized um, systems of exclusion uh, and ideologies of exclusion that you know exists and continue to exist in europe and now not only is zionism an inheritor of these of these uh, 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 ideology it's also the place where new racialized systems of control, exclusion are created and then exported to the empire. So you have now in, 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 in the Zionist movement, a place for new ideological innovations that are both, you know, created within the interaction that Zionism has with the Palestinians and then also uh, appropriated for other places other contexts, whether within the metropole itself, meaning in the in the in the center in the U.S. in Europe, or across the globe as well, and materially but also ideologically speaking, so it, it has that also role that it plays. But again, I think to me, when we talk about the pleasure of of killing, of course, it has to do with this October seventh, but it's not only about October seventh. Of course, that this kind of opening where this kind of like unconscious, subconscious, but also conscious desire that is always part of Israeli discourse in its media about the figure of the Palestinian and rendering this figure invisible. What you can see it in the wall that separates, you know, um, uh, Israelis from Palestinian villages is that, you know, even the wall tries to wipe out, you know, um, um, the view of, of, of the village. 
the view of the existence of the Palestinian people uh, behind the wall. So if you live in Tel Aviv and you just go to the north and the south, you can almost live without any kind of knowledge of uh, Palestinian villages just across uh, five kilometers or 10 kilometers from your home. Uh, and with little interest in, in, in that world or the occupation that exists or in the settlements and the settlers that also, um, you know, you can completely be devoid of that and feel comfortable in this modern state. And the wall on their side is actually beautiful. It's tiled. It has drawings. On our side, it's like, uh, you know, ugly, aesthetically unpleasing, at least in terms of when you look at it, you feel caged, you feel etc. Um but, you know, it tells you uh, quite a lot about how all of these self-defense mechanisms almost, uh, you know, get exposed just simply by how the militarist side of Israel, once it's broken, you know, everything else just pops up, you know. And that's why this is, this is a desire to, to feel safe again through killing more and more Palestinians, to feel secure again, to feel like you're not a thief, to feel that the all real owners of the land don't have a chance to actually reclaim their land and live on it. Um, that that needs that needs a, a massacres, that needs a lot of killing, and that needs the wholesale destruction of the Palestinian people. But to be to be honest, I, I I never thought that Israel was not doing that. It was always doing that, but it was doing it in a very slow, sometimes contradictory way, in ways that sometimes produce unintended consequences that did not calculate, and then it had to deal with, because uh, you know they fail at planning. Sometimes they fail in terms of how they organize their own settler colonial project and the retake and the expansion of of their own state, and it creates their own internal contradictions, etc. But, you know, I think that it's always funny when people um, who have a secret get the secret exposed, how they interact with it. And I think that's also this relationship between a secret shame that you have and getting exposed uh, is, is, is operative in terms of what happened in the past month and how sometimes uh, many people, when they have a truth exposed that they held near and dear, and then suddenly it opens up and becomes a scandal, they double down with the lie. They double down with uh, with what they knew that they should be doing from all along. What Benny Morris, for instance, says in his own book, after studying the ethnic cleansing campaign of, of 1948, 1947, 1948, 1949, he says that the problem with Israel is that it did not complete ethnic cleansing so that's that was the mistake for benny morris no? and i think that shows in, in a way that if we complete it if we finish it, if we you know maybe we can rest maybe we can now become whole maybe we can now be sovereign maybe nobody will claim palestine as their own and i think you know to be honest i don't think that will ever happen for the israelis they will never you know, be in a situation where they 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 feel rest assured that their uh, robbery is now recognized as legitimate or as normalized. I don't know. History works in different ways. 
-hmm. But I think that will always, as long as they're Palestinians, as long as they're people who claim this land, as long as there's an Arab uh, world that is also, uh, you know, has a history of antagonism despite any kind of immediate meaning of interest based on current power dynamics and geopolitics. The Israelis, if they want to live in this region um, and be part of it, um, you know, they will have to reckon with their own history and um, be be more humble because, you know, in, in, the, in the medium run, in the long term, they have really very little chance of sustaining their presence here. Because, you know, power ends, things change in the world. Um, one day you're on top, the next day on you're on the bottom, you know? And, you know, it could be 100 years, it could be 200 years, it could be 300, who knows? But, you know, at the end of the day, the way dynamics uh, operate historically with anybody, and, and this is what for me is, you know, quite amazing and perhaps tragic about the Zionist movement itself, specifically its relationship to Judaism, because Judaism has this deep historical, you know, relationship to a tradition that sustained itself throughout the years. Um, through religious teaching, of course, and, you know, this lively uh, Talmudic learning, etc. But also, you know, at some point through this kind of critical posture that many Jewish intellectuals took against the environment, Enlightenment and its project because they were this internalized anemic other and because they were also excluded from uh, you know the same rights as the white Christian European I mean there's a long history of this historical consciousness uh, among the Jewish uh, people specifically this 3,000 3, 4,000 I mean and I think Zionism has distilled it to the just a simple equation we need a state of our own that protects us from all the others. And that state needs to be um, bulletproof. Mm -hmm. And the tragic thing about it is also it was constructed in a, in a region that historically speaking did not have and did not exhibit the same antagonism towards the Jewish people. No? It's not like Europe. Yeah. I mean, of course, it doesn't mean there's no tensions. I mean, people, when they say that, oh, like, you know, Muslims and Jews have sometimes, of course, I mean. Right. But it's not a systemic, like, it's a it's a bug, not a feature. And in, in, in Europe, it's an absolute feature. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's part of also the equation that we were talking about. It's a, in a sense, not only Jews are, you know, European Jews are displaced outside of Europe, into Asia, into Western Asia, to create the state, but also we're gonna displace the antagonism from this kind of, if we wanna talk about it in terms of like these civilizational units. Mm -hmm. I'm very, yeah, I'm very, I'm not keen on talking about civilizational units because I think they're constructs and they could change, etc. But at least in this kind of con constructed, you know, European versus the other, the Arab, you know, and the Jew who are also constitutive of what Europe is. And this is important to, to mention that, there's no Europe without this kind of internalized and external enemy, you know? These these two operate together to create, you know, Europe as such. Uh, but beyond that, beyond that element of speaking of how, uh, you know, by displacing also uh, Israel into the region and creating this Arab-Jewish antagonism, 
Islamic Jewish antagonism, whatever you want to call it, is also kind of turning as if the the historical um, you know issue of anti-Semitism is now displaced on the Islamic Arab civilization, and that's how it's connected today. No, I mean. If you're Palestinian and you're 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 unhappy that Israel was created on your land, you're anti-Semitic, you know, and you're you're anti-Jewish. You know, you, you hate supposedly you hate Jews because you don't want any people to come and you know uh, and take your land or, or 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 steal your land. And I always always say this: I really couldn't give you know a damn who who conquers Palestine. It's French. They're French. If they're German, they're German. If they're, I don't know, um, some other people uh, from Mars. I don't know. Whatever, whatever the people, whatever they say about themselves and about their claim, from purely Palestinian lens, we don't care. They're an occupier. Period. An occupier. They have our. We don't, we're not invested or interested in their identity or history. It's not my issue. It's not, you know, we can study it because we are curious about these people that took our land, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Perhaps we want to study them out of just understanding what they say about themselves and, and how they construct their own, you know, uh, narrative, etc. But we don't care. We don't care about, you know, their identity. It's not our investment. It's not something we care about. And people asking us this is, is asking us from, from us to be, um, you know, to, to prove that we don't hate Jews or that we have this kind of embedded vile hatred of, of the Jewish people. Um, you know, it's it's ridiculous, it's, it's, it's stupid, and I think it's it's in many ways a projection of their own historical hatred of the Jews. 100%. It's, yeah. it's, it's displacing that onto us. And when they ask you that question, they themselves want to feel comfortable that their own hatred exists somewhere else, you know, and that they can feel better about um, not hating the Jews as much, perhaps, specifically if it's coming from white, you know, Europeans, uh, who are obnoxiously still, many of them are, are anti-Semitic and anti-Arab. And, and I think, um, you know, that is for me undeniable. And that's why the choice, even with Germany, you know, backing Israel is also for me, form of anti-semitism that still persists in german policy i mean um they could argue that against us no it's a way to redeem ourselves or pay a debt to the jewish people fine but i think it's 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 a choice that you're making that is also in itself uh, anti-semitic based on the fact that you're 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 conflating judaism with israel uh, and with the zionism itself and it's always important to just mention to people there's a lot of Zionists that are not Jews and there's a lot of Jews that are not Zionists. Mm -hmm. By doing that, you're just, you're anti-Semitic because that's the position uh, you're taking. You're saying all Jews are Zionist or all Jews have an interest or a stake in the Zionist movement. Again, you know, the Jew might just not care about this whole issue or yeah. have a position against it. I don't know. Um, so yeah, for me, I mean, I don't want to like you know uh, talk too much, but in in essence, I think um, yeah, we just don't we don't have an interest. I mean, I you know I don't, I don't care you know what this Polish 
Central European Jew says about himself when he decided that this land is his land and he's going to take it from me. I mean, I really couldn't give uh, a damn about that. I don't think it interests me even uh, slightly because I think in many ways, no matter who would have come to Palestine, and this is important, we never went to Jews and tell them, come here, let's, you know, come to Palestine so we can kill you. Uh, you know, that was not the, the equation. You know, we didn't like ask them, we didn't send them a message across the world. Hey, come, because we hate Jews so much, please come to Palestine so we can uh, engage in violence against you. And in fact, I do think that if Jews came as refugees that want to live with us, I don't think that Palestinians, I mean, there might be tension around any form of, you know, movement of population, spatially in terms of, you know, how people interact together, but I don't think there will be this form of antagonism against, uh, you know, uh, uh, against the takeover of, of Palestine that we've seen from the Palestinians when Zionism declared that it wants to take over Palestine. It's a different thing. The, the Zionists never came to Palestine to live with. They came to live instead. And and in essence, that, that was an equation that is intolerable to the Palestinians. And, you know, eventually it's going to be politically untenable for the Zionists. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 100 years, 200 years, it's going to be politically untenable because they're in a very particular region. And eventually... You know, they cannot sustain this on the expense of other people. Mm -hmm. It will demand a complete recalibration of the Arab and Palestinian imaginary to do that. And that is almost impossible. And no matter what political regime now normalizes with Israel or because of Israeli power in the meantime, you know, that there's that dynamic of fear and the burden of of death and killing and feeling a sense of being deterred by Israeli power. But this is always going to be temporary. You cannot sustain this forever. You cannot normalize yourself in the region on the basis of crushing the region. There's no normalization on that sense of placing 450 million people under your foot and thinking that you can sustain that forever. It's arrogant. It's stupid. It will never work. And I think, you know, October 7th just proved it, that it will never work. Mm -hmm. It proved it. It's not burning, perhaps, in Israeli consciousness because they still killing will get them, you know, uh, killing more Palestinians will get them out of this mess that, that happened. But I think at some point they will have to reckon with this fact. I mean, that's, that's, that's I think, the, the story of what happened since October 7th is that they're still postponing the, the reckoning with uh, their own limitations and the limitations of what a paranoid, neurotic political movement that knows that it has stolen land and forecloses it in different ways um, has to deal with. And that military power will never be the only uh, answer uh, for the presence of, of Jews in the Middle East and how that presence can be constructed. That was brilliant, uh, Aboud. And the only thing I would add to that is 
brilliant point that was made the other day by Asad Abu Khalil on uh, Rania Khaliq's show, Dispatches, where he said that Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian resistance movement and even the Lebanese resistance movement have been very invested um, in recent years in a way that they weren't before in studying the Zionist enemy, learning the Hebrew language and being able to intercept not just text, but audio and being able to understand it. This is a this is something that Israel until this day refuses to do with Palestinians. They refuse to understand Palestinians. They refuse to understand uh, what motivates Palestinians. And, um, and even if they do to some extent, even if they're analysts do to some extent, they completely fail to understand that it's an impossible project um, to execute. Um, in any case... Uh, oh, the, just one note. It's it, because they feel sometimes they're successful. That's why they, they, they fail. Because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of bias. Because they see somebody like Mahmoud Abbas who, who symbolically compromises, um, who they can push over. Um, and sometimes that gives you the sense that, okay, we can burn into their consciousness something. They can be defeated. We have the prisoner that we took and confessed. No, we tortured and confessed. We have, so we have this kind of, you know, you know, uh, history of seeing, for example, some uh, Arabs uh, that live within the boundaries of Israel serving the Israeli army or, um, you know, saying that they're Israeli now or feeling a sense of belonging at some level to Israel. You know, there is some level to that, that they feel that they can be successful because they see the Emirates signing agreements with it, because they see Bahrain signing agreements with it. They see Saudi willing to, to you know, take its secret relationship and bring it out in the open. They see more sympathetic or let's say uh, political voices in the Arab world that you know willing to cooperate with it. Sometimes a, a, a an alliance of convenience, you know, these new incomers from Europe, oh, we have a problem with our neighbors, so they can maybe help with it. You know, like for example, the Maronites or some of the Maronite right wing, you know, uh, currents saw in Israel a sort of. Uh, uh, an ally of convenience, they can help us uh, at some critical junctures and points. But in general, in general, I mean, and, and you know, um, despite that, despite the existence of forms of cooperation with Israelis, that they feel a sense of, uh, you know, it proves, okay, military power maybe produces somebody who is defeated. It produces sometimes um, um, political movements like Fatah, for instance, that used to read the revolution and now, you know, it's a pitiful echo of its past um, and has betrayed its past, in fact. Not everybody in Fatah, but, you know, at least its current leadership. So you have, you have, you have all of these elements interplay and the, the Israelis can see them. That's why they insist on, on feeling that there's a sense of a triumphant Zionism that, at least for the past 10, 16 years, Netanyahu was very sympathetic, uh, you know, 
symptomatic of that because I think Netanyahu comes in power specifically. I mean, he was in power in the in the 1990s, but he comes in power after the 2006 Lebanon war that Omar led. No, he comes after the Second Intifada, and he comes after. Uh, so the Palestinian issue was dealt a blow, at least in the West Bank, militarily speaking, and the resistance was defeated there. He comes after the this equation of deterrence is created with Lebanon after the 2006 war. And he comes into power with not a lot of threats, in, 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 in at least in the immediate sense of a threat. You know? And he told the Israelis, I'm Mr. Security, because that was a secure era for a lot of different reasons. And because the major wars that you conducted in the beginning of the, the 2000s, you know, helped you at least for a while feel a sense of, of security. Um, you know, there were the wars in Gaza, but they were manageable from a far away. And Lebanon seemed deterred. You had the, the Arab revolutions. The Arabs were busy with themselves. You know, a lot of these different dynamics convinced the Israelis um, they're in a better position, the Abrahamic Accord, blah, blah, blah. And, and Netanyahu represented this kind of like um, Israeli feeling of security, feeling that we're in this moment that uh, at the height of our power with very little to worry about except some distant nuclear uh, program in Iran that Iran is hesitant to move to full. Uh, and, you know, Lebanon, perhaps, but there's still this pain, this of pain, mutual pain that deters the Lebanese resistance. And Gaza is a manageable issue. And then comes 7th of October, breaking down that. We have Abu Mazen, we have an entire current in the Arab world that supports us in back. So they still believe that they can they can they can repeat their own uh, historical successes uh, of creating this sense of defeat. But even even among among those defeated in Palestine, there's still a sense of melancholy that wants to retain Palestine at some level. I wouldn't bet on it that it's gonna, you know, come back to life. But people sustain the idea of Palestine. Nobody doesn't, you know, completely, uh, you know, want to kill it. People sustain some sort of notion. Whether um, so that that specter exists in most people, and 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 knocking Palestine out of out of the Palestinian consciousness is a very tough business to do. And I think because of the enormity of the injustice done to us, it's very hard for all, also for us to transcend, you know, Palestine and think of a world without it, without uh, reclaiming it. And that's why Palestinian subjectivity is generally, or Palestinian nationalism is a, is a defensive mechanism. You know, I'm, I'm not into nationalism that much, but Palestinian nationalism has at least this element that is very self-defensive and it could be that once you don't need the self-defense anymore, you don't need Palestine. You know, it doesn't, you know, it exhausts itself as a, doesn't have to, Palestine doesn't need to turn to a state, for instance, like some people think it could turn to something else. I don't know. Maybe it will be a new model for humanity. But I think that at least for me, uh, precisely, I think that the Zionist project 
is is like Sisyphus. It, it repeats the same uh, repeats the same action, but thinks it learns something. That's what's so dangerous about it. It thinks that it learns historical lessons. Thinks it learns military lessons, but it repeats the same thing. And I think this is why we shouldn't give them a lot of credit about being a learning organization. Yes, they learn tactically. They learn from the developing technologies. They, you know, there are elements. I don't want to, you know, bring forth as if Israel doesn't learn. But in a in a very overall sense, they don't. In, in, a, in a strategic overall sense, they don't. Whether it's, you know socialist zionist or whether it's religious zionist i don't think that there is a is a, is a different uh, element of really learning what to do with the palestinians or, or how to live with or how to create a different condition that that ensures that you know they don't maintain this form of superiority and oppressive uh, system against the palestinians to the extent that we can say that perhaps zionism in its essence, needs somebody to oppress. Mm -hmm. and, and this is one element of what remains from the Holocaust, you know, buried, or not buried, sorry, uh, burned in the consciousness of, of this historical victim that needs somebody to victimize, mm -hmm. that needs to avenge the SS guard by displacing, you know, the image of the SS guard onto Palestinian people. No, it's it's funny because, for instance, now you have. It's not even funny, but you know now you have groups of settlers that chooses the word Nazi to describe Palestinians. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know you have the the, the um, somebody called Gaza should be turned like Auschwitz. Um, I think it was the deputy mayor of Jerusalem that claimed that we, you know Gaza should be you know turned into Auschwitz. So you have these analogies, mm. either that we are Nazis or we have to be encamped as the victims of the Nazis. Now, this is this is a very dangerous territory. It's like Palestinians are Nazis. It means that Palestinians supposedly are powerful, you know? because at least in the historical relationship between national socialism and the Jew, the the you know, the Nazis were more powerful. They, they're the ones that controlled the state. They're the ones that conducted the Holocaust. So apparently they were they were under power. So in this sense, by displacing this notion of being Nazi, you're placing me as superior. But at the same time, you want the Nazi to be in Auschwitz. You, know? it's, it's, you want kind of this historical revenge to be conducted on somebody that has nothing to do with the Holocaust. It's it's a it's a it's a tragic sense, but that's how it's constructed. We're so powerful at the same time, and, and it, it comes up, and it's it's almost uh, not only hysteric. I think it actually echoes a lot of like the mythology around anti-Semitism, this anti-Palestinian sentiment, where the Hajj Amin Husseini, as Netanyahu says, mm. gave the idea of the Holocaust to Hitler. Like, you know, imagine like he turned the Palestinians to the ark. You know, to the to the symbolic, um, you know, the symbolic other mm. that is responsible for everything that happens to to Jews you know? mm. historically, even in things and episodes that we have very little or nothing to do with, like you know, the killing, the mass killing of the European Jewry in in, in, in Europe in, in the mid twentieth century. 
I mean, it's anti-Semitic. You're like absolving the real criminals by saying that. Yeah, it's, but it's not only anti-Semitic. It's anti-Semitic in, in, in absolving. It's also convenient ideologically. It's true, but it's also anti-Semitic in terms of, you know, projecting onto the Palestinian the same type of uh, mythology about the powerful Jews, no? About the powerful Jews that control finance, that control... Uh, that control the world, that you know, disrupt society. So the Palestinians suddenly become the the secret, um, symbolic other with a big O, you know, mm -hmm. that, that is responsible. That that knit all these different conspiracies against uh, against the Israelis and against the Jews in this case. And and I know that it comes more out of a convenience of you know trying to link Palestinians to the Holocaust trying to stigmatize us as part of that um, but but that convenience also tells us a lot about that attempt to displace on the palestinian the figure of the anti-semite the figure of the nazi the figure of of you know that is all being constructed all at once to justify theft but also to enact a historical revenge against the Germans that the Israelis never actually enacted, except with the figure of Eichmann. They have never done that. On to the Palestinians. And, and to keep killing the Palestinians as a sign of it, as a sign of their own sense of now they, become, they can be secure and now they can feel a sense of um, um, invincibility that historically Jews, at least in the narrative of Zionists, never felt in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, brilliant, brilliant, Aboud. Um, when you brought up the myth of Sisyphus, 